Hello, everyone. Welcome to Energy Security Cubed, where we explore the pillars that form the nexus of energy security in Canada and the world, energy, economics, and the environment. I'm your host, CEO of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Kelly Ogle. For today's podcast, we're featuring an interview with Greg Brew, postdoctoral fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute of Global Affairs and a CGI fellow. Before we dive into that, I'll have a quick discussion with our Energy Security Forum coordinator, Joe Kalman, about the news stories affecting global energy security this week. How are things with you, Joe? Feeling fine, Kelly. Uh, we just this morning had a uh, very interesting discussion with Minister Anita Anand. Yeah, with, there was a gamut of things touched on with the minister who was very forthright and, and very approachable on uh, things that are happening from a defense and security perspective for Canada. It was a great meeting with uh, a lot of thought leaders from the city of Calgary there. Um, but what's in the news, Joe, uh, energy-wise, that's uh, really moving the needle for you? Well, the most important thing, in my opinion, right now is that we may be in the home stretch for the revival of the uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action nuclear agreement between Iran and many of the global powers, including the United States. But that is the subject of the interview with uh, Greg Brew, so I'll let him handle that. Uh, South Korea's Ministry of Trade, Industry and Energy uh, released a draft of their long-term power plan. So according to the draft, uh, Korea will boost nuclear as a share of generation in 2030 from around 24% in the old plan to nearly 33% in the new plan. This, uh, that's interesting, Joe. From what I understand, this will come mainly expensive renewable energy which drops in this new plan from 30% to just under 21 or just under 22%. And, and uh, there'll still be a major expansion of renewables, which provide about 5.7% of power and generation in Korea as of 2020. But over the period, uh, nuclear has steadily declined as a share of power generation since the 90s, when it provided over 50% of Korea's power. There's still some major changes. Um... And uh, although this is coming at the expense of planned renewables, we should definitely note that this will require a major expansion of renewables in South Korea. Uh, We should note, though, that this is just a draft plan, and it will need to go through several additional steps before it becomes policy. Uh, But it nevertheless demonstrates the new direction President uh, Yoon Suk-yeol wants to take his country on energy. Uh, The move to revive nuclear is paralleled in Japan, where Prime Minister Kishida looks to quickly restore a number of nuclear plants shut down after Fukushima to operation. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of challenges ahead here, though. The realists have uh, overtaken the room when it comes to a lot of security issues, including energy and the emphasis on, on nuclear power. But boy, the fleet globally has aged, you know, and uh, as have nuclear workforces and supply chains. Um, in July, the president of the Japanese Atomic Industrial Forum met with media representatives and decried the state of the injury. There's a long way to go here, Joe. I, I'm really quite concerned. Um, in Japan, for instance, R&D spending was dropped to about half and more than 20 giant suppliers have exited the business. Senior engineers have retired and the number of young trainees has declined and none of them have gained experience in working on reactor construction projects. I think there's a long way to go here. It's noble and I think it's realistic to meet climate goals, but there's a long way to go. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. And I think as Canada also pursues nuclear with, uh, for example, our SMR action plan, uh, we need to be paying attention to what Japan and Korea are doing as well. 
and uh, watch some of the challenges they're facing because they will be similar challenges to ones that we'll face. Very much so. Uh, in other news, uh, Europe is planning to introduce measures to reduce the pain of current high power prices and decouple the price of electricity from the price of natural gas. Now, in the last few days, power prices in Europe have come down significantly, but they're still very high. And I think that this will still be an item on the agenda. So European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said Tuesday that the EU's power market is not functioning properly due to semi-monopolistic actions on gas prices by Russia. Well, that's just part of the story. A decade and a half ago, the European community made the decision to think that they could power their grids on renewables. And, you know, they have done nothing to uh, underpin baseload power situation. Mm -hmm. And it's true that the commission is looking into ways to reduce power prices in the short term and decouple natural gas from electricity. Um, this is going to be a big discussion point when the energy ministers of the EU meet early in September, I believe on the 9th. Some countries like Italy and Belgium have asked for a temporary cap on wholesale gas prices. I don't know, Joe, but depending on how you structure something like that, it could be a very bad idea, wouldn't you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if the proposal is for the EU to subsidize natural gas or for the member countries to subsidize natural gas, as Spain has done, uh, it will have the effect of encouraging consumption at enormous expense to the government, which will run counter to the EU plan of reducing consumption by 15%. If the proposal plans to just force purchasers of natural gas to not buy gas above a certain price, though, then LNG cargos will simply go to higher bidders in South and East Asia. It's real easy to turn a ship around, right? <laughs> you just turn yes. it to ship, you know. You know, the marginal or, or opportunity cost are could become uh, very, very important here. And, uh, you know, the, the shippers are ambivalent. They're indifferent. It's funny. I, you know how I always retreat back to realism, Joe, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of realism going on in the way they're planning out this, these future crises that are about to occur in the winter. Um, I'm really concerned about discussions around decoupling electricity prices from natural gas. As I said, uh, natural gas has its place as the marginal source of power generation for a reason. It's very flexible and can maintain reliability during major shifts in demand or in systems with high renewable penetration supply. You know, businesses in Northern Europe, they're stopping production or going out of business daily here because of an inability to power their, themselves and or uh, energy they use to, to create their products. It's, uh, I really worry about it, what a potential decoupling could look like. You got one more story, Joe, that I think really hits the button for Canadian listeners. Uh, much closer to home, the federal Canadian government has again invoked the Transit Pipelines Treaty to prevent a shutdown of the Line 5 pipeline. This is different than the Michigan Governor Whitmer's pushback, which was against Line 5, which was tossed out by Michigan court last week, right? Yes, uh, this, is a, this is a different disagreement. This one's in Wisconsin rather than Michigan. So the... Federal Minister of Foreign Affairs, Melanie Jolie, said on Monday, and I quote, that the economic and energy disruption and damage to Canada and the U.S. from a Line 5 shutdown would be widespread and significant. This is pretty strong language. So the Transit Pipelines Treaty includes a ban on agencies in either country, quote, impeding, diverting, redirecting, or interfering with in any way the transmission of hydrocarbon in transit. 
Um, so this time, the treaty was invoked in response to the Bad River La Pointe Band of the Lake Superior Tribe of Chippewa Indians, uh, requesting an injunction to stop the transit of oil and products across its territory. Now, this is just around uh, 12 miles of pipeline that crossed their territory. Line five, for some context, has a capacity of up to 540,000 barrels per day and provides crucial feedstocks to the refineries in Ontario and Quebec, as well as propane to the U.S. Midwest. So just for a, a bit of context, the treaty is that, that's in place was negotiated by uh, Trudeau the Older, Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, and President Jimmy Carter, and voted for by then first-term U.S. Senator, no other than now President Joe Biden. It aims to ensure, among other goals, as you said, the uninterrupted transmission of hydrocarbons between the two countries. Um, treaty is very clear and concise, and these are these actions are a blatant, unlawful act of interference and are purely political, from my opinion, uh, from this uh, band and tribe of uh, Chippewa Indians in the Lake Superior area. As you say, 12 miles of a line that runs for close to a thousand miles and uh, is crucial to the fair trade and transit of goods that provide um, energy and uh, for the citizens of Midwest United States and Quebec and Ontario. I think this is, to me, in my opinion, Joe, this is a tempest in a teapot. There you go. Joe, there's lots of things to keep an eye on, and I look forward to talking about some more next week. Absolutely, Kelly. Looking forward to it as well. Okay, let's switch over to our interview with Greg Brew. I think that people will be really intrigued and get a better realistic understanding of what's going on in Iran right now. For today's interview recorded August 30, 2022, we discussed the situation with the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, nuclear agreement, and possible impacts on energy markets resulting from sanctions relief. Joining me from New Haven, Connecticut is Gregory Brew. Greg is an historian of oil, the Cold War, and U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. He is currently a postdoctoral fellow at Yale University's Jackson School of Global Affairs. I'm also very pleased and proud to say that Greg has recently become a member or fellow, sorry, with us at the CGAI. Thanks for joining us again on the podcast, Greg. Thanks so much for having me back on. We've got a real hot file here that we're going to talk about today. And so why don't you let us know what's the current status of negotiations of the joint comprehensive plan of action? Sure. So uh, for months, these negotiations seem to be in something of a state of suspended animation. Uh, of course, the Biden administration, President Joe Biden, came into office in early 2021, promising to return to the JCPOA, and negotiations have, between the United States and Iran and the other members of the deal have been ongoing, uh, with various negotiations happening in Vienna, mostly. Uh, but each round has ended in deadlock, with neither side, the U.S. nor Iran, reaching an agreement over uh, where or how to return to the agreement. Uh, over the course of the last year, Iran has steadily increased its stockpile of enriched uranium. It's activated more advanced centrifuges, and it's edged closer and closer to the capacity to construct a nuclear weapon. It has not as of yet, or as far as Western sources can confirm, taken the plunge and actually built a weapon, but it is getting closer to that capacity. Uh, then last month, kind of out of nowhere, uh, during another round of talks in Vienna, the European Union produced a draft agreement that it called a final text for a deal. And it sent this draft to Iran and the United States uh, to see if it could be used as the basis for an agreement. Both sides have offered their comments. There's been back and forth 
between the U.S. and Iran, with the EU sort of working as a mediator or a, a referee, if you like, regarding the final terms of an agreement. The finer details of the talk are still being kept secret, but the rhetoric from both sides suggests that an agreement could be in sight uh, for the first time uh, in over a year when these negotiations started. Uh, so the big question, will we see a return to the JCPOA in the near future? There are lots of caveats uh, to include in that consideration. Uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency, or the IAEA, uh, which is the agency that's been monitoring Iran's nuclear program, opened a probe into Iran several years ago regarding some enrichment activities that Iran had been undertaking uh, without the IAEA's knowledge. That probe is still ongoing. Uh, Iran's government has made it clear that it won't return to the JCPOA until that probe is terminated. So that's a major obstacle. Another obstacle is the United States Congress. The JCPOA isn't the most popular deal here in no. the United States. <laughs> and there's a lot of opposition in Congress uh, from both Republicans and also uh, many Democrats to the deal as it currently stands. Um, according to laws that have been passed, Biden, President Biden must submit the deal for Congress's consideration. Uh, and there are tools in place that could allow Congress to hold up a final agreement or render it meaningless by implementing new sanctions on Iran. So, and of course we have to remember, we're still not at an agreement. There's still finer details that have to be uh, ironed out and either side, Iran or the US could pull out and we could end up with a deadlock just as we have over the last year. So that being said, things are looking more favorable for a return to the deal than at any time in the last 18 months. When you came on the podcast in February, you said that the uncertainty around oil supply increased the urgency for the US getting a deal on the agreement while the Iranians got more leverage has this happened? Does it look like Iran will be able to get uh, unexpected concessions? You know, as the world shudders under the the uh, pressures of uh, energy security, um, you know, oil is a large part of that. And prior to to, to uh, sanctioning, Iran was a fairly substantial oil producer. Absolutely, uh, I think the situation on the global oil market uh, has made a return to the JCPOA more attractive for the United States and the other members of the deal. Uh, President Biden has undertaken a variety of measures from releasing oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to traveling to Saudi Arabia to talk with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, all in an effort to increase the supply of oil on the market to reduce prices and to fight inflation. Uh, so that has, I think, made a return to the deal slightly more urgent because as you say, Kelly, Iran is a major oil producer and there is Iranian oil that could come back onto the market if a deal was uh, to be reached. So that is a consideration. Whether that has translated into more leverage for Iran, I think, or, or into new concessions, uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say that. Um, I think Iran could get a good deal uh, if the US dropped its sanctions and ir allowed Iran to increase its oil exports. In exchange, uh, it would see the limitations placed back on its nuclear program. It would have to submit to increased IAEA inspections, uh, and the sunset provisions for the agreement would allow these uh, these terms to remain in place for really only a year, year and a half until a new presidential administration potentially comes to power in 2025. Uh, so I think the oil market situation has made a return to the deal more attractive for both sides. Uh, but the economic rationale for a return has always been there for Iran and for the United States. Uh, so I think the global situation has increased the sense of urgency but I don't think it's given Iran uh, any greater leverage than it would have under uh, different circumstances. You know, the, the whole, one of the 
linchpins of this whole thing is is the sanctions plus and minus right and and the relief from those what's the general outlook among you iranian watchers for how much oil could get to the market and and how soon could that happen this is a really interesting question and it's actually one that's provoked quite a lot of debate uh more recently um so as you may know as, as your listeners may know uh iran is under sanction by the United States, secondary sanctions that are designed to prevent it from exporting any oil whatsoever. Uh, that has not been the case. Iran right. has been able to export oil, um, mostly to China, uh, under a variety of illicit means. Um, it's never, it's often been unclear as to how much oil it actually is selling uh, or whether it's selling a, a steady amount, whether the supply is fluctuating. Uh, but if you look at Iran's export capacity uh, in 2016-2019, when sanctions had been dropped, when it was allowed to export oil, it was exporting anywhere between a million and a half barrels a day to a little over two million barrels a day, out of a total production of around four million barrels a day. It's a substantial amount of oil. Uh, under the current situation, you know, mostly selling oil to China or other customers, Iran is probably exporting between 500 and 800,000 barrels a day. Uh, I'm certain that the sanctions regime has weakened its infrastructure, has made producing the same quantities of oil more difficult. Uh, that being said, uh, I would estimate Iran has between 800,000 barrels a day and a million barrels a day of spare capacity that it could bring online between three and six months once sanctions are dropped. So that's a lot of supply. And the economic benefits for the United States uh, lower, lower oil prices, reduced inflationary pressure, lower gas prices at the pump, uh, and for Iran, you know, windfall from oil sales at market prices and increased production are both clear. And as I mentioned before, this increases the urgency to return to a deal, uh, and I think makes the deal more welcome for uh, other countries, including Russia and China, who would benefit from lower oil prices and a reduction in uh, instability in the Middle East. Yeah, I think that, you know, you, you mentioned spare capacity, and I'm a bit of a bugbear. It's a bit of a bugbear with me when people talk about production versus spare versus capacity. Yeah, sorry about that. Sorry no, about that's that. fine. No, it, no, it, with the terminology. Yes, I realize you know, that. It, it, but it brings up a great point, Greg. You know, a million barrels of spare capacity brought on in a three to six month period would make a giant difference in the 100 million barrels per day of oil production in the world. It's only 1%, but it acts way different than that. People need to understand that, like, especially when we're under the pressures of, a, of not enough capital to replace diminishing and declining reserves of the 100 million barrels a day. But I digress. And you brought up a very interesting point about this isn't just United States and Iran. Um, two major players in the JCPOA agreement are Russia and China as two of the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council. And what, what role did they play in the original agreement? And have they been more active participants in current negotiations? Because I think it's very important, given what's happening in Eastern Europe and Ukraine, that this is, you know, this is going on at the same time. And it's, it's a different file, but they're, all, they're certainly connected. Absolutely. Uh, Russia and China both play important roles in the JCPOA as it was originally negotiated and as these negotiations for return to the deal have been progressing. Uh, Russia's role is actually quite important. Uh, it is responsible for accepting Iran's enriched uranium once a deal is made. Uh, it takes that enriched uranium um, out of the country. It assists Iran in, if you like, de-weaponizing certain portions of its uh, nuclear program. Uh, under the terms of the original agreement, it was supposed to assist Iran in turning the enrichment site at Bordeaux into a research center. 
focused on medical purposes. Uh, so Russia's role as a nuclear state, as a state with somewhat more friendly ties to the Islamic Republic, uh, has been an important one. Um, and during these current negotiations, these more recent negotiations, Russia's played an interesting role. Uh, at times, it's almost looked as though it's tried to uh, prevent an agreement for reasons that are very often obscure, uh, that may have something to do with its, uh, you know, its, its currently strained relationship with the West and with the United States over the war in Ukraine. Uh, at other times, it seemed quite supportive of a return to the agreement. Uh, so it, it, it's often been difficult to tell precisely what Russia's position has been. I would argue that currently Russia is supporting a return to the agreement. It wants uh, a uh, sort of a, de, uh, a de-escalation of the nuclear situation with Iran, uh, in part because it values its relationship with Iran and it wants sanctions on Iran to be dropped. Uh, China is in a similar situation. China is also a state with more friendly relations with Iran. Uh, China is, you know, a, a growing power. It's expanding its economic relationship in the Middle East, which is a major source of energy for the Chinese economy. Uh, China recently signed a 25-year uh, trade and military partnership with Iran, uh, so it clearly values its relationship with the Islamic Republic. That being said, China has also increased its ties to other states in the Middle East, uh, including Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, states which traditionally are hostile towards Iran. So what China wants is a return to the agreement, wants uh, the situation in the Middle East to be somewhat more stable, uh, and it's very concerned with nuclear proliferation. It wants to prevent a nuclear Iran if it can and see uh, the nuclear program um, de-weaponized and de-escalated uh, from its current status. So both China and Russia are leaning towards supporting an agreement uh, and in the case of Russia, it's, uh, their role in actually facilitating the deal is quite uh, an important one. Greg, I don't know if I, if you can answer this question or not, but I, I, I know that you know, given the trade and and uh, interaction of China diplomatically with Russia more than others, would China have a role to play in the in the capital required to bring that that spare capacity on? It seems to me that that would be a or who is going to do that? Because, you know, we, we, there, there was a lot of discussion early in the conflict with Ukraine as, as uh, Western service companies left Russia. Where, where would the, the technologies and services come from to, to, put, to bring Iranian oil back on, on uh, production? I, and this is a bit off the script. I'm just, it just popped into my mind, and I wondered <laughs> if you had anything to add about that. No, no, that's a that's a very interesting question. And, you know, traditionally, and, and this actually gets to some of the bigger changes that are happening in the global market, you know, traditionally, Iran looked to customers in uh, East Asia uh, uh, for, you know, an outlet for its energy products. But it also looked to Europe and Western Europe, not only for energy markets, but also for economic, cultural, political ties. You know, Iran historically sees a closer connection to the West than it does to the East. Uh, and that's just speaking in terms of through the longer span of Iranian history. Uh, that being said, your capital uh, uh, requirement question, I think gets at a very important recent change, which is that Iran, for reasons linked to geopolitics, for reasons linked to uh, the withdrawal of the US from the JCPOA and current geopolitical conditions, have seen the importance of embracing a closer relationship with Russia and China, as opposed to uh, you know, rebuilding its relationship with the West, with Europe, uh, and certainly, uh, you know, trying to attempt a closer relationship with the United States. That's not on the table anymore, I would argue. Uh, Iran is going to look to Chinese and Russian companies 
to assist it with expanding its energy infrastructure. It's going to look towards China for capital to rebuild its economy, which has been ravaged by sanctions. Uh, and this might not be something that Iranians, the Iranian people and the Iranian government necessarily want, but it is something that circumstances uh, within the broader geopolitical situation demand. Uh, Iran is improving its relationship with China and Russia largely out of necessity. Uh, and I don't see that trend changing anytime in the near future. I would also say, I use, uh, I wanna clarify something I said a little while ago. When I say that Russia, China, and other powers are trying to de-weaponize Iran's nuclear program, that's not to imply that Iran has a nuclear weapon or is trying to build one. That isn't clear. Uh, when I say de-weaponize, I mean moving Iran away from the capability to potentially produce a weapon, um, which is the point of the JCPOA uh, and its provisions. I wanted to make sure that's clear in case, uh, yeah, in case people I, I, people question my uh, my uh, terminology there. No, that's a very good point because I that that's an unknown, right? And it, and it's part of the reason that I for my next question because it's hard to negotiate in a vacuum, and that's where we're at, kind of. Because if you dig a bit deeper into the history of Iranian and U.S. relations. Uh, which is your specialty, by the way. So I'm certainly, I know a little, I know just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> There's a few facts about the JCPOA that stick out. And the first is that the original agreement was the first formal agreement between Iran and the United States in 34 years. Think about that. And the second is that this latest round of negotiations, Iranian and American negotiators don't meet together. You've, you've alluded to this, but let's go a little deeper in that. And, and discussion was instead indirect channeled through intermediaries, which like you just said, such as the EU's Enrique Mora. Could you give us an overview of some of the historical grievances that have made deal-making so difficult between the United States and Iran? And, you know, I, you know, this goes all the way back to the early 70s, right? Like it's, uh, and, and more specifically, 1979. Absolutely. Um, I mean, as many as many of your listeners know, as is still well known today, uh, Iran and the United States used to be friends, used to be allies during the days of the Shah who ruled Iran from 1941 until 1979. Uh, Iran was, and still is, one of the largest and most developed nations in the Middle East. It has a long history, a powerful sense of nationalism, national unity, an urbanized, educated, industrious society, a developed economy. Uh, so during the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, Iran and the United States were quite close allies. Uh, there are historical grievances, legacies of distrust, uh, grounded uh, in its earliest days in the CIA coup that overthrew Iran's government in 1953. That's an important early source of grievance and suspicion. Uh, more importantly, of course, there's the 1978-1979 Islamic Revolution, which overthrew the Shah and empowered a new Islamic government. Um, and there, thereafter followed the storming of the U.S. Embassy in November 1979 and the hostage crisis, which lasted uh, uh, almost two years. Um, that, I would argue, poisoned U.S.-Iranian relations more than anything else. It produced deep suspicion and mistrust, misunderstanding. The Islamic Republic of Iran, the government that is in place, uh, and I will make the distinction clear between the government of Iran and the people of Iran, the government of Iran uh, has historically viewed the United States as a disruptive force, as an imperialist nation, as a power that seeks to undermine or weaken Iran, and it has used that relationship uh, to its advantage to build its power base within Iran, to use this source of hostility uh, as a source of legitimacy for itself. Uh, so that, and then of course on the US side, there's long been a view of Iran as a disruptive power in the region, as a power that seeks to expand its influence, that has supported terrorism, 
that undermines traditional U.S. Uh, partners and allies such as Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the Gulf states. Uh, this has only uh, uh, encouraged continued suspicion, mistrust, and misunderstanding. In the last 40 years, there have been occasional attempts at rapprochement uh, that have collapsed one after the other. The JCPOA was the first successful uh, uh, attempt at building a slightly more cooperative U.S.-Iranian relationship. And I would argue that the ensuing drama you know, the withdrawal of the United States from the JCPOA in 2018, the maximum pressure campaign that followed, and these recent negotiations have only solidified this historic enmity, have only made it more difficult over the long term for the U.S. and Iran uh, to build a bridge. I mentioned a moment ago that Iran is increasingly turning towards Russia and China, uh, and that is a result of the, the collapse of the JCPOA, even if the deal is renegotiated, even if it's returned. To, uh, for only a limited amount of time, uh, I don't see anything happening that will improve the U.S.-Iranian relationship. In fact, I, I would be fairly certain that it will only deteriorate further. Yeah, it's, it's still a, a bubbling cauldron. <laughs> There's, and you know, in the in the all the great power competition and juxtapositioning that's going on globally, this is one that certainly sometimes gets overlooked, which which can't. You know, it is a certainly a giant linchpin everything sort of the noise is almost always around saudi arabia mm -hmm. but this is a very very important part of what's happening in the middle east not just yeah. with energy you know with energy markets in particular but more importantly with the larger geopolitical considerations in my opinion i want to finish off with a actually a completely unrelated question because i'd like to get your view on on this um last week it was revealed that uh, u.s energy secretary granham penned a letter to American refiners asking them to redirect current exports of refined products to refilling domestic inventories and saying that if this did not happen, that the administration would, and I quote, consider additional federal requirements or other emergency measures, and unquote, to refill inventories. And again, and then just to add a little more fodder, this morning I'm reading where there were questions about uh, LNG exports back in February as well, I've, I saw in social media this morning. Um, What's your take on this, Greg? And it certainly seems like a strange move with Europe preparing to cut off Russian product imports. You know, the oil's one thing, gas in liquid LNG for in LNG form is another thing. Refined products are what makes trucks move and and mm -hmm. cars and and uh, drive drives the economy really. What what's your take on this? Yeah, I thought it was very strange when I saw the report of the letter um, because it seems like a counterproductive move. Uh, for the reasons you allude to, uh, the administration has made energy a priority. Uh, it's also made the war in Ukraine a priority. Uh, Europe is about to face an energy crisis uh, as a result of that war, as a result of the response to the war. And so far, there hasn't been a whole lot of transatlantic cooperation over surmounting that energy problem. Uh, this letter from Granham to the refiners seems to go in very much the opposite direction, prioritizing domestic consumption over any kind of international cooperation. Uh, it also seems counterproductive to me. Uh, to take a hostile tone towards companies that the administration probably uh, uh, should try to cooperate with uh, as far as getting adequate amounts of products to market. That being said, it wasn't hugely surprising to me uh, for reasons uh, that uh, I'll explain. The administration has always had a contradictory approach to uh, energy problems. Uh, they want gas prices down. They want energy prices down. Um, and for that, they need companies to operate at peak efficiency. They need more product on the market. They need more oil produced. 
and they've made that clear. At the same time, a lot of the administration rhetoric has been focused on attacking companies about their so-called windfall profits, about the supposed gouging of customers. Uh, so the tone is very often hostile and non-cooperative. Um, so it doesn't necessarily surprise me that Granham would have taken this tone. The focus of the administration right now is very much the midterm elections, which are in a few months. It has been a major issue this year uh, that gas prices are too high. The administration, I think, is trying to do whatever it can to bring gas prices down. And short of doing that, they want to do everything they can to look like they're bringing gas prices down because appearances are almost as important as material outcomes. So the letter, uh, while strange uh, and vague in its particulars, I think to me served a fairly clear political purpose, if not a particularly uh, constructive one. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, it's as the theme of this podcast is um, energy economics and the environment. And I think that a lot of the pressure inside that administration from the, you know, the people that from in, in their administration, much like Canada's that, that are at the, the, the tipping point of decision making, they have these grandiose aspirational goals about the environment, which oftentimes get have been easy to say, but not so easy to implement. And when it gets to the uh, exact, the, the real pressures on the economy, um, and then, and therefore energy security, things change. And I think I'd just like to end that, that point by here we are where realism is full front center and the national interest wins out because that's what the base of realism is, right? We'll use our power to substantially, uh, uh, maintain whatever is important in our national interest. And I think that sort of over, that's my own opinion of what overrides this whole thing about the, uh, domestic product inventories um greg thanks so much for coming on again i this is uh it, it, your, your views are very succinct and um and, and prescient um and we really appreciate you helping us out here uh before we go what are you reading since we've talked to you in february uh i'm reading a lot uh because uh, i recently finished my own book project uh, yes. i have two books i have two books that are coming out um uh so i finally have time to read uh for, for fun and for work again, because I was focusing on those. I just finished uh, Helen Thompson's Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, which is an excellent book uh, that ha is very uh, concerned with oil and energy. So your, your listeners might enjoy that one. Um, I just finished uh, Paul Sabin's Public Citizen, which is a book all about the 1970s uh, and the uh, uh, campaign toward government oversight uh, in which uh, Ralph Nader plays a very important role. Right. So there's some interesting history in that one. Uh, and I just received a copy of a book by Fritz Bartel. Uh, the book is called The Triumph of Broken Promises. And it is about Reagan, Gorbachev, uh, and the end of the Cold War. Um, so uh, lots, to, lots to read and lots to recommend right now. Lots of great books out there. That sounds like a busman's holiday to me, Greg, but that's okay. <laughs> I... <laughs> Very interesting. And we'll put those up on the website as well as your two books too, to make sure that folks are able to have a look at those and, and purchase them if they so would like sounds, to. Sounds good. Greg, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CGAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give it a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgaica support. 
Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Joe Kalman, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed.